0: As a quick disclaimer, there's a brief mention of sexual assault this week. Nothing violent or explicit, but I just wanted to give you a heads up. There's more info on MythPodcast.com. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of a Viking family on moving day. From there, we'll watch as family matters unfold, leading to the confirmation that, yes, the most awkward guest to bring to your family reunion is your secret side companion and your really great-looking love child. Then, on the Creature of the Week, It's the Yule Goat, and he's just in time for Christmas. That is, until he gets burned down. This is Myths and Legends, episode 209A, Bloodlines. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, But are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode is the start of a short little series of Viking stories, and each are absolutely worth a listen. These characters were a lot of fun to explore and write, and I hope you like them too. These are set in the 9th and 10th century, and we'll watch as the Viking world changes to something radically different. But first, a Viking chieftain needs to make a hard choice. It was evening when Kettle Flatnose, Viking commander of over 100 warriors, gathered his family together. Grim news had arrived from the south. King Harold Fairhair was consolidating his newfound power and he was on his way. Kettle Flatnose had fought on behalf of the previous king. Some of his men had died on behalf of the previous king and a reckoning was inevitable as Kettle's principles reared against the raw power and vengeance of the new king. So, family, Kettle said, gripping an axe and addressing the crowd packed into his longhouse, crackling flames lit up his face with the glow of a fire giant. We have two choices, submit to King Harold's rule and allow ourselves to be conquered by a man we've always stood against or make our final stand here and let the ground that holds our ancestors take us as well. He looked down at his axe, thought of the dozens of times he had buried it in a man's head or chest. I know what my choice will be. Who's with me? Uh, yes, in the back, Bjorn. Bjorn lowered his hand. Hi, yes, uh, Bjorn Kettleson from here? Uh Okay, what if we just, you know, left? Kettle cocked his head and looked out the window. Left, like on the wings of Odin's Valkyries, after we face our enemy and fall honorably in battle, the crowd grew rowdy. Bjorn shook his head. No, 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 just like, what if we're still alive? But we just go somewhere else. Somewhere not here? (laughs) Laughter shook the longhouse. But then uh, silence overtook the meeting they could do that? Huh. I never thought of that, Kettle admitted. Oh my gosh, yeah. You know, yeah. He was all for Valhalla. But of course he didn't want to go there today. All right, everyone, he announced. New plan. Where does everyone want to move? With moving day officially scheduled, it was now time to figure out their destination. Agreeing on a place, however, proved more challenging than anyone anticipated. Kettle's sons, Bjorn and Helgi, voted for Iceland. Having seen nothing but five-star reviews, despite the name, word on the street was that it remained relatively undeveloped. Someone going there could simply dock their boats and declare large swaths of land as their own. It was a place where one could establish a dynasty to last for generations. Kettle, however, wanted a bit more nightlife and refused to spend his golden years in what he claimed was, quote, little more than a fishing camp. No, he would go to Scotland. Besides, having once been a youthful Viking raider in Scotland, Kettle already knew the area quite well. What better place to settle than a country where you casually robbed and slaughtered by the dozens, he added. Still, it seemed like people had it good there, so Scotland it would be for him. And that's how Kettle parted ways with his sons. Bjorn and Helgi packed up and left for Iceland, while Kettle and his daughter, un-the-deep-minded, established a new life in Scotland. Now, despite, or maybe because of, Kettle's extensive raiding, the local kings of Scotland were all very friendly toward him. They gifted him a ton of land, and Kettle fell into a good rhythm, Happy with his new life. Unfortunately, the apple doesn't fall too far from the larceny tree, and Un's son, Thorstein the Red, followed in his grandfather's old footsteps. In short order, Thorstein the Red took off down the coast, raiding to his heart's content until he eventually found himself ruling nearly half of Scotland. He was on top of the world. But when your rise to power depends on oaths made to satisfy your sword, The security of your reign goes out the window once that blade is no longer pressed against your subjects' necks. And so it was that Thorstein's power lasted all of about 10 minutes, until the surrounding kings banded together, murdered him, and everything returned to normal. Soaring the ranks herself, unmoved to the Orkney Islands and established a settlement there before traveling to join her brothers in Iceland. The three siblings, reunited again, staked out two different areas setting up several farms and villages. For a period of peace, the siblings reigned together as a family. Time passed, and on the Deep-Minded, eventually had a great-grandson named Hoskold. we catch up with him around the time of the Great Gathering, an all-thing that happened once every three years, during which the kings passed judgment on notable cases. Hoskold had attended this year, and after observing, it was time for a little light shopping with family in Denmark. He shuffled along, perusing rows of goods. One item melted into the next, and pretty soon, eh, they all started to look the same. That's when an ornate tent caught his eye. Hoskold approached, mesmerized, and nodded to the merchant sitting out front. It said that this man wore a big Russian-style hat and introduced himself as Gilly the Russian. Hoskall gasped. Gilly? The Gilly? The richest merchant in the market? Gilly grinned with a nod. The very same. Hoskall glanced left and right before leaning in close to the man's ear. He had a bit of an unorthodox request. Gilly took one look out at the street, to the countless feet crunching through the early snow on the road. Come inside, he beckoned. As they settled inside the ornate tent, Hoskald explained his dilemma. He came from a rich family in Iceland, and money was no object. The problem was that he, well, he missed his wife back home. Joran, Gilly nodded. Say no more. He could arrange the safest, most comfortable transport, but but Holskold held up a hand. Well, here's the thing. He tried again. He missed being with his wife. Was there anything he could buy here hmm, to help alleviate his, you know, longing? Notice the suggestive eyebrow waggle? Gilly the Russian grew serious. Was this Icelander asking if he dealt in enslaved persons, human chattel? He rose, a look of rage mingled with disgust, contorting his face. Hoskold stammered, turning beet red. He was so sorry. That was completely out of line, he now realized. It was Gilly's turn to hold up a hand. If this Westerner wanted a slave so badly, then he should look at Gilly's inventory. Hoskold started a retreat to the door, Shoulders slumped when he paused. Wait, wait, what did you say? Gilly cracked a smile. I'm just messing with you. Yeah, this is the Middle Ages, and I'm the richest merchant in Denmark. Of course I have people for sale. The Vikings are very okay with enslavement. How do you think they make so much money? Illuminated manuscripts? Please, come on back. Who sculled follow Gilly the Russian to uh, look at his inventory? Behind a thick curtain sat twelve women, all evenly spaced. Hoskold walked among them, looking left and right with each step. Hmm, you know what? Maybe this wasn't a great idea. Then, his eyes caught another. Sitting poorly dressed off to the side, up against the edge of the tent, Hoskold stuck out a thumb. What about her? Gilly cleared his throat sheepishly. Hoskold... Hostgold wouldn't be interested in her. Look at her. Look how dirty and poorly dressed she was. Ew. But Hostgold was not convinced. He lingered there, mumbling to himself. Both of these were things that could be fixed. In fact, he found her to be quite beautiful. Why was she off in the corner? Well, she's more expensive. She's three marks of silver, Gilly spat, which, for context, is what a character will later pay for an entire farm. The price tag only made Holskulld want to buy her more. Three marks? That was walking around money. He dropped three marks of silver onto the scale, even as Gilly continued. Also, she's completely nonverbal, you should know. She doesn't speak at all. Holskulld merely shrugged. He didn't care. Now, could he buy her or not? Reluctantly, Gilly scooped up the silver it was multiple times what he would charge for a base level human and he could not bring himself to refuse sure why not joran beamed and waved as her husband Hoskold disembarked from his long ship. It had been three very long months, nearly all summer, in fact, since she had seen her husband, and who was that? Hoskald feigned surprise. Oh, her? Where did you come from? Okay, uh, she actually doesn't have a name, or if she does, she hasn't told me. Uh, she actually doesn't speak at all. This here is just a friend that I that I bought. The woman, draped in a beautiful dress that may have at one point been bought for Jorun, bowed low. But Jorun only sneered and walked from the shore. It was an uncomfortable homecoming. Jorun ran the house and made sure the new woman was nowhere near it, ensuring that, as far as she knew, Hoskald and the woman had no contact whatsoever. When he returned, Hoskald was a model husband, you know, except for buying another woman put up for sale against her will, all to satisfy his carnal urgings while he was on the road. Unfortunately, they couldn't ignore the past, especially when it came knocking on their door in the form of a baby shower invite. The woman was pregnant. Months later, painful screams rang throughout the longhouse as the master's son was presented. Jorun glared. Jealousy squashing any desire for politeness. But Hoskald nearly dropped his mead. That, that was a good looking baby. The servants looked silently at the child. That was as weird to say as it was objectively true. That baby, that baby was handsome. Now, personally, I don't know what makes a baby handsome. Is it some chiseled baby jawline, or a full head of luscious Fabio Viking hair. Who knows? But the sagas assure us that little Olaf was one beautiful baby. And yeah, he would come to be known as Olaf after one of Hoskald's recently deceased uncles. In no time, Olaf proved to be one of those magical babies that matures faster than normal. And by two, he was speaking eloquently and running around doing whatever Viking boys of four do. So, I don't know, killing stuff and getting into blood feuds. It was obvious how much Hoskold liked the boy. And loving father that he was, he arranged for them both to be assigned to the house, to wait on him and Joran, so he could get to know Olaf better. Father of the year right there. One morning, just after sunrise, Hoskold tacked up his horse, He had early business in town, which was a good jaunt through the woods. With a squeeze, the horse moved from trot to canter, mud sloshing with each bounce. A cool spring stream flowed along the ice beside the pair, carrying away the last of winter. But there was also another sound, one out of place in these woods. Through the trees, he heard words. Huskold sat back deep in the saddle, and slow to a walk. As the words hushed, they were mere whispers now. He dismounted slowly, and, sword in hand, crept into the forest, only to find his son, Olaf, and Olaf's mom, whispering behind a trunk. You can talk? Hoskold shouted, sheathing his sword, and feeling more surprised and happy than angry. No! The woman countered. Ah, rats. How long have you been able to talk? Huskull asked. The woman shrugged. "Uh, Always? He learned that day that the woman's name was Melkorka and that she was the daughter of an Irish king. She had been captured when the Vikings raided her land. That day, she had been out with her handmaids. The Vikings didn't even know who they had. Melkorka had guarded her identity. Learning the local language, She changed hands a half a dozen times before Hoskold found her in the market. Gilly the Russian had suspected that she was highborn, and he'd been close to finding out her lineage when Hoskold bought her. Hoskold stroked his beard. Wow! So she was a princess. That explained why Olaf was such a good-looking kid. But why hadn't she spoken to him, at least privately? Did she not trust him with her lineage? They had a child together. Oh, you mean trust that the enslaver who bought me was a reasonable and respectful person? She asked. Huskull nodded. Okay, that was fair. After that day, Olaf held an honored place in the house. Much to Jorun's continued rage, Holskold told anyone and everyone of his luck, that the side woman he bought and raped turned out to be a princess, and now he had a royal son. Things were going really well. Except that, on account of Holskold's foresight being, well, completely lacking, he had assigned Malkorka to be the personal handmaid to his wife, and, well, someone ended up with a broken nose within the week. Joran had thrown her wet, stinky socks at Malkorka, and the woman, having had precisely enough of that, punched the missus repeatedly in the face until Hoskold managed to break up the one-sided fight. It turned out being a very good move for Melkorka because while Hoskold didn't want her going to another household, it became clear that she couldn't stay at the estate a minute longer. His solution was to gift Melkorka a tract of land down by the river where she and Olaf lived on their own, basking in peace and happiness. The boy, Olaf, was lucky too, because Hoskold had a friend, an old man named Thord, whose wife had passed, and who didn't have any children. If he died, his farm and all of his wealth would go to his late wife's family members on the other side of the island. The old man hated those people, so in an effort to stick it to them, he fostered Olaf and declared the boy his heir. Olaf worked hard, and Thord's land prospered. When the man eventually died, Olaf found himself, the result of a secretive past, nearly on equal footing with his father, who couldn't have been prouder. All the while, Olaf had managed to save a ton of extra money, which he now used to buy himself and his mother the best clothes and weapons to match their new place of importance. All throughout town, he became known as Olaf Peacock for his fancy dress, but on the inside, he never forgot his humble beginnings. Melkorka, now recognized as a freedwoman, woman, began to attract suitors, especially after her high birth was revealed. She married a rich and kind man, and after years of uncertainty, trauma, and tragedy, she was finally able to look to the future, because this time, she was making choices for herself. Melkorka could see Olaf's curiosity, his lingering glances at the Western Sea, She knew that he wanted to know about the land of his birth. But if you wanted to go west, you needed a reason. You needed goods to trade in order to pay the voyagers who would accompany you. So, Melkorka had married Thorbjorn, a rich merchant, who immediately agreed to let his stepson lead a trading mission to Ireland. The mission, it had its ups and downs. Small issues here and there, like getting shipwrecked and fending off your own countrymen who are threatening to dismantle you if you don't let them dismantle your boat. You know, little things. It was a learning curve, for sure, but eventually Olaf made it to his grandfather in one piece. He told old King Myrkjartan of his daughter's experience, about how she'd been taken prisoner at the age of 15, but she was alive, and that she was actually happy at last. In the end, Olaf turned down the offer to rule all of Ireland as one does, saying that he only wanted to meet his grandfather. For him, that was enough. King Mirkjartan outfitted his grandson with a new ship, compensated him for the goods, and sent him home to Iceland. Once returned, Olaf resumed his duties on the farm, met a young woman named Thorgurd, settled down, and started a family. He named his first son Kjartan after his grandfather. It wasn't long before Olaf's father, Hoskuld breathed his last. He'd had three sons in all, Olaf, Bard, and Thorlake. We'll catch up to a grown-up Olaf with a family of his own, but that will be right after this. how long is he going to stay? Thorgerd whispered to Olaf in the next room. The angry man, Yeerman Thunder or Yermin the Noisy, walked around the house gripping his sword. It was named Legbiter and he never, ever put it down. He hailed from Sweden and he was now hundreds of miles from anyone who knew his name, let alone wished him ill will, but he was difficult like that. Olaf had gone on a lumber-gathering trip to Sweden, where Giermund Thunder, a local landowner, had helped him out. Naturally, Olaf had thought it impolite to ask the man to leave when he found Giermund on his boat, thankful for the lift to Iceland, where he supposedly had business. That business, it turned out, was freeloading. And, well, business was good, because when they arrived at Olaf's docks, Giermund didn't have a place to stay. Now, sitting in the kitchen, feet propped on the table, Gehrman drank milk straight from the jug. He registered a noise behind him and turned with a grin. Hey there, he greeted, looking the girl up and down. Olaf's daughter, Thurid, smiled awkwardly and ducked from the room, whatever she had wanted suddenly taking a back seat to leaving Geerman thunder as soon as possible. Gehrman turned around once more as milk soaked into the front of his wool tunic. His sword had accidentally punctured the jug, and now it was spilling everywhere. He watched the puddle grow. Yikes. Someone should clean that up. Knocking his chair over, he rose and left the room, before anyone could point a finger. Later that day, Olaf struggled to form the most forced smile he had ever produced. You don't say. Ah, what a fun offer. Thurid was fifteen and was almost as old as her father. So neat. Well, they would talk it over and get back to Geermund. Okay? Thank you. Bye-bye. Nope, 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 nope. Nope, Olaf said. The moment the door was closed, there was no way his teenage daughter was marrying that monster. Mama Thorgard sighed. Well, Olaf spun on his heels. What? She was in favor of this? Of him? Thorgird recoiled. No, ew. Of course not. She only meant that he wasn't ideal, but he was rich and stupid enough to be manipulated. He wasn't malicious either. Plus, if the two married, they would be leaving. Thorgird held out her hands. Trust me on this one, she said. Olaf had only existed as a rich man in the Middle Ages. But Thorgerd said that Thurid's life would be defined by her match. And unfortunately, she could do a lot worse. So Olaf trusted Thorgerd, And much to young Thurid's horror, the couple announced the match. Clinging to the hope that such a sacrifice would ensure Giermund would be leaving. It seemed like there might be a light at the end of the tunnel. Except there wasn't. Because leave he did not. The newlywed Guillermin hung around for three more years. Third, hating every minute of her marriage. She even hated the child she had with Guillermin at age 17. It took Olaf building a boat for the couple, for him to finally blast Guillermin from his estate. <laughs> standing aboard the new ship, alongside a fresh crew. Geirman thanked his father-in-law. Olaf had built the ship and hired the crew, and his generosity did not go unnoticed. Geirman was going to raid so hard with this. Additionally, he was deciding to go in a different marital direction, and as such, he was leaving Thurid and their daughter, Groa, never to see them again. Thorgurd and Thurid's, the mother and daughter's, jaws dropped as Guillermund ordered his men to push back from the docks. Olaf patted his wife, Thorgard. Yeah, great match. Both women were enraged, but Olaf was just happy to have the man gone. It was time to get things back in order. He instructed a few servants to clean up the beachfront, but Thurid threw up a hand to volunteer. She insisted she could use some fresh air to think through some stuff, she said. No one could argue with that, So, off to the beach she went. It was while she was out on the shoreline that she found something unexpected. Out there, at the mouth of the river, sat a new-looking ship. It was her father's ship. Well, her husband's. It pushed out to the mouth of the river before completely losing the wind. They had been sitting there for nearly two weeks, just waiting for things to pick up. Thurid's baby squirmed on her back. And Thurid had an idea. No one heard Thurid's oar as it slid into the water, especially those on Gearman's boat. That, that was the plan. Little Groa, barely one, slept in the pack on her back, making it difficult to climb the side of the boat quietly. Still, Thurid somehow managed without waking the baby or the men on said boat. Silently, she picked her way over and beside the sleeping men, patting across the deck, until she stood over him. Giermund, and there he slept, holding his beloved sword against his chest. Having shared a bed with him for the past two years, Thurid knew how heavy a sleeper he was. She also knew how painful it was to sleep with a man who rolled over with a sword in his hand. Still, it was easy to pluck leg-biter from his curled fingers. She looked at the sword. It was nice. Ivory handle, not a spot of rust on it. And as the legend went, if someone held it, they would never fall. It was a fair trade. She made quick work of the exchange, sheathing the prized sword before pulling Groa out of her carrier and stuffing the child into the pack at Gearman's side. The baby stirred as Thurid retreated across the deck and shimmied down the side. She worked for a moment longer before boarding her ferry and making off into the night. Thurid wasn't halfway down the river before the baby's cry rang out. And then, a scream. In an instant, Gearman was at the edge of the boat, cursing his wife's name across the water. Surprisingly, she called back, asking if he was looking for his stupid, precious sword. Well, it was hers now, and he would never see her again. Over the water, Geerman begged for its return, pleading with Thurid, who bobbed in the shadows, smiling. Geerman paused. Uh, could Thurid also come get their one-year-old? Raiding was no place for a baby? Thurid's silence rang loud and clear. What Geerman did with his child was none of her concern. He'd been dishonorable to her, and this was what he got. Full of rage, Guillermin ordered the boat after his wife. But when nothing happened, he whirled around and found his crew splashing in ankle-deep water. They would get right on that boss after they patched the boat. It seemed that part of Thurid's getaway plan included drilling holes in the boat with an auger. By the time they were finished, Thurid would already be back with her family. Calling out once more, Geerman shouted that the sword wouldn't give Thurid any luck. In fact, you know what? He was doing it. He was cursing it. He was going to curse it. Yeah. How do you like that? It will be the death of the man in your family, who will be the most missed, and who will deserve it the least. Boom. Cursed. In the darkness. Thurid rolled her eyes and padded home without a sound. Now, if you think that Guillermin might have a redemption arc with his daughter, like this is some sort of Baby Yoda thing, well, that would be cool. Once they patched up the boat, the wind actually picked up again, and Guillermin decided to bring his daughter along. It wasn't ideal, but maybe he could learn to both be a Viking and a dad. Except, he didn't. That's not what happened at all. A couple days later, he and his whole crew wrecked off the coast of some island, and everyone died, likely due to Thurid's compromising modifications of the hull. The next morning, it was plain to see that Olaf wasn't happy about what happened, but he let it go, after he realized Geerman wasn't coming back for his cursed sword. Thurid decided that she also had no use for it, and besides, The curse said it was supposed to kill a family member of the owner's family. Still, it was an undeniably nice sword. And so she decided to gift it to the kid who loved her family even more than she did. On that day, Bali became the new owner of Legbiter, the sword. If you're like me, you're probably like, who's Bali? Because I've said a lot of names this week and none of them have been Bali. Bali was Olaf's nephew turned foster son a kid he was watching for his brother, Thorlik, who recently had gotten into some trouble and had to leave Iceland. Bali was just about the same age as Kiartan, and the two boys could not have been closer. In fact, it's said that when the boys were not together, they felt as though something was missing from their lives. And so, with Gjermin gone, the house of Olaf Peacock enjoyed a time of peace. And Bali grew up with Kiartan, Olaf's first son, as his best friend. All this leads us, at last, to the main character of the series, Guthrun and her dreams. Guthrun waited on the moors, watching dusk fade into darkness. Wind howled along the foothills of the mountains as she fed her tiny campfire. Being out here all alone, put her at the non-existent mercy of any nearby bandits or trolls. But it wasn't men or beasts or even the creatures lurking in the caves that brought fear to her eyes. It was her own dreams. She needed answers. Somewhere off in the distance, a horse whinnied. It was nearly too dark to see, but Goodrun sensed someone approaching gripping a knife beneath her cloak. She crouched low, as the form rode closer. And then, she relaxed. Just the man she had been hoping to see. A wizened man atop his horse, squinted at the fire, dancing flames illuminating the creases on his face. She, uh, yeah, she was Osvif's girl. He hadn't seen her in years. Clearly she had grown. What was she, 14, 15? The man grinned, She probably didn't remember, but his name was Guest, Guthrun offered. You are Guest Odlefson. The man nodded in surprise, narrowing his eyes with a smirk. The chieftain, Guest, didn't need his famous gift of prophecy to see when he was expected. Guthrun ventured a small step forward. This guy was as clever as they said. Her father's farm wasn't far, she explained. If he was on his way to the all thing grand meeting, they will be honored to have guests stay the night. The old man nodded. It was a kind offer, but he had made other plans, and they couldn't be kept waiting. Guest dismounted his horse and walked over to the fire. He welcomed the opportunity to stretch his legs a bit on the long journey. Now, tell me about your dreams, he said. Guthrum was about to ask him how he knew that, but stopped herself. Very good. "'There were four specific dreams that troubled her,' she began. "'The old man nodded, inviting her to continue. "'In the first, Guthrun stood outside, next to a stream. "'She wore a headdress, even though she hated it. "'She wanted to be free of it, "'but many people told her uh, commanded her to wear it. "'At the final moment, she tore it off and tossed it into the water. "'It always ended there. "'In the second dream, Guthrun stood by a lake. On her arm was a silver ring. She liked that ring, even loved it. She wished to keep it for a long time and care for it, but it always slid off her arm into the lake. Once in the water, the ring was always lost forever, its absence stabbing at her with the feeling of a great loss, more than was befitting of a mere ring. In the third dream, she wore another ring on her arm, this time formed from gold. It was hers, and it made up for any prior loss. Guthrun hoped to have this one for a long time, but it didn't quite make her feel like the silver one, despite its material. In this dream, she always fell, the gold ring falling with her. Each time it broke in two and bled. Broken, the ring revealed all of its flaws. If only she had looked after it better. It might have remained in one piece. In the fourth and final dream, Guthrun wore a heavy golden helmet, one that she could barely support. It, too, fell into the water just before she woke up. Guest sat there, poking at the fire. After a moment, he took a deep breath and turned to Guthrun. Well, that was easy. She would get married, he told her. Guthrun nodded, As a beautiful woman from a rich family, that was pretty much expected of her. But the old man interrupted. Four times. You will marry four times. Guthrun's eyes widened. Oh. Guest continued. Yes. The first. The headdress she ripped off. That would be a bad match. You will leave him, he predicted. The second man, you will care for greatly. You will plan to be together for a long time, but he will die. Drowning, probably. The silver ring fell in the lake. Guthrun sat with rapt attention. The third dream with the golden ring, Guest said, looking to the sky. There will be a change in your world, and this man will change also. But here, the gold breaks and bleeds. He will be killed, and after he is gone, you will see clearly the faults of that marriage. The last husband, however, the heavy helmet, is a man who will far surpass you. The helmet falls into the fjord. So that man will have an experience with a fjord on the final day of his life. Guthrum was speechless, arms wrapped around her legs. How could she change this future and keep these terrible things from happening? A sad smile formed on the old man's face. Slowly, He shook his head. That was her fate. There was no changing fate. Only learning to live with it. The old man pressed his hands onto his knees and rose. He thanked her for the conversation, but he still had miles to go before he could rest. He left Guthrun there, stunned and staring into the fire. Guthrun didn't know it, but the place where Guest was stopping to rest was the farm of Olaf Peacock, where he could observe each of Olaf's children. At the sight of Kjartan and Bali, a tear fell from his eye, but he refused to say more. That's where we're gonna leave it this week, because as we get into Guthrun's marriages and the incredible story of Kjartan and Bali, It really takes off. So yeah, come back next week. I love this story. I spent so long on it, and I think you'll like it too. If you'd like to support the show, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a genuine fake prank gift box that makes your friends think you're giving them an all-in-one showerhead coffee maker soap dispenser, you can get bonus episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't leave you wishing coffee in the shower was a thing, and also that you spent money on something more than an empty box. For more information on the membership, go to support.mythpodcast.com. And if you're more into something you can wear, hang on the wall, or stick somewhere, we have a little merch shop with all things myths and legends. From t-shirts to stickers, posters, and the rules of myths and legends, it's all there. Check out mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Yule Goat from Sweden. Do you know that Santa is a Thor fan? Well, okay, not Santa, but St. Nicholas, who, like Thor, travels around via goat, handing out presents to people. I mean, Thor doesn't hand out presents to people unless presents are his hammer, and the recipient is giant's faces, but that's a whole other thing. The Yule Goat sometimes flies, and sometimes doesn't. But regardless, St. Nick rides around on his back, Now, Thor's goats were a meal on the go for him. Remember that he could kill them each night, and in the morning they would resurrect, so he could ride them again only to kill them that night and roast them. And it's thought that the Yule Goat harkens back to a more ancient pagan tradition, like this one. Maybe using those to make Christmas more palatable for recent converts. Each year, in the city of Jävle, Sweden, they set up a giant 40-foot-tall goat statue made of straw, in honor of the Yule Goat. They've done it, as far as I can tell, yearly, since 1966. And most of the time, it gets burned down. Despite lining up with the tradition of Thor's goats being killed as a symbol of resurrection, the burning of the Gavle goat is not sanctioned. It shouldn't happen. In fact, it carries a three-month prison sentence and a big fine. But despite guards, surveillance, and being very close to the fire station, people still manage to burn the goat down with regularity. I don't know what it is about a giant goat made of hay that just makes people want to burn, but there you go. But as a publication, the goat this year is still standing. I link to the goat's Twitter page in the show notes at myths.link goat. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme music is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music, the Myths and Legends website, shop, and more in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? You should really check out BetterHelp. They assess your needs to match you with your own professional, licensed therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours visit BetterHelp.com myths. That's Better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Myths and Legends listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash myths. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.